Hello there, I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. You may have seen Envision's report on the state of design maturity. It's called the New Design Frontier. We surveyed thousands of companies to explore the relationship between design practices and business performance and captured the insights in an extensive report. Well, we've got a special guest for you in this episode of the Design Better podcast. Leah Bewley, Director of Design Education at Envision and primary author of the report. In this episode, we chat with Leah about how teams are measuring success in design, the dimensions of design maturity, and we debunk some of the myths around team size and ratios of designers to engineers. So get ready to explore the new design frontier with author Leah Bewley. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for design better a breeze. Gusto is also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. So Leah, let's start from the top. Can you just give us a quick overview of the research that you've been doing for the past uh, three or four months? Sure, I'd be happy to. So at a high level, you could call it a, a design maturity study, but I think it's a little different than other kinds of studies that have been out there because we have access to so much more information about companies doing design at Envision. So this has been a real deep dive into uh, thousands of companies to understand what are the behaviors and resources and practices that they're doing today in their design process and what's the business impact that they're seeing from that. And uh, the way we approached it, we really wanted to bring some quantitative rigor to that work. So uh, the size of the study is, I think, notably bigger than some other uh, research that's been done in the past. And the level of analysis has been, I'd say, a bit more rigorous. And so from that, we've been developing a, a new model, kind of fresh for today, that really draws a direct connection between design activities and business impact and goes into a lot of detail about what you need to do to actually be more mature and have more business impact with design. So when Leah says that the, the study is a little bit bigger than, than what has been done in the past, that's kind of an understatement because it's roughly 2,200 companies that were studied. Those are companies around the world across different types of markets, including you know, agencies and product companies. And so it's, it's a very broad look. And I think that you know, usually it's a few hundred that are studied. Yeah, for context, when I was working at Forrester and doing this kind of analysis, a few hundred companies in a study would be considered a pretty good study. The McKinsey study, which just came out, which is fantastic, it has 300 companies in its sample. The fact that we are in the thousands means, uh, number one, it's statistically significant, which is really great. And number two, it means that we can do really deep cuts, actually. So we can say, okay, in North America versus Latin America, what's going on in maturity? In advertising versus banking, what's going on in maturity? And for big companies versus small companies, it just we can slice and dice the data in so many different ways. And that's, um, that's what that bigger, uh, more rigorous study gives us. And so, yeah, we were you know, I, we took advantage of the fact that we have a lot of contacts with a lot of different companies who do design. And so we pulled out all the stops to get all of our friends involved in this. And from that, we were able to do, I think, really groundbreaking analysis. That's not it's unlike anything else I've seen or worked on. I can say that for sure. And this is meaningful research for us because our mandate in the design education team at Envision is um, to help design practices in lots of different types of organizations advance and, and press forward. 
And we've seen a lot of growth in the past couple years, how companies have changed, um, companies investing in design. And I wonder if, Leah, if you could talk a little bit about, give us some contrast of where we've been in the past three, four years in the design industry broadly, based on your experience doing research at Forrester and um, independently, and then you know doing this research with us. How's the baseline changed? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the big trends that we've seen just in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years even, is that organizations are investing, you know, much more significantly in design as a function. So big uh, growth in headcount and new management layers coming in and organizational changes, you know, to account for all that. So seeing design departments spun up, seeing design leaders at a peer level, uh, at higher and higher levels in the organization with other executives. So, what that means is there's a lot more money being spent on design inside companies. We see that reflected in our data, actually. But the big question then that follows on from that is like, is it being well spent in every case? And if it and when it isn't well spent, what does that look like versus what does an efficient investment in design actually mean? So I'd say you see this reflected actually in the way that our past uh, models to understand design maturity have been constructed. So a lot, I, I did a big survey of more than a dozen different design maturity models that are out there. And the prevailing wisdom has been over, you know, the past um, decade or so that low maturity means uh, low resources. Like you just don't have a lot of designers on staff. The work is ad hoc. There just isn't enough, there aren't enough people to do the work. And there's been a prevailing assumption that that means your ratios are super out of whack and you don't, you know, tons of engineers, not enough designers. And as a companion to that, I think these maturity models kind of posit that like if you can get to operational excellence and have big scale and repeatability and good like recruiting practices and a big management layer, that's what maturity looks like. What we see in this research and just how the industry has evolved overall actually is that with all this big headcount, there's a lot of companies now who have big design teams who are actually still very low maturity. They're doing practices that aren't really resulting in substantial business benefits. And there's a much smaller subset of companies who are now having outsized impact on business through their design practices. And what they're doing, the particular behaviors they're doing are new to the design field. They're much more focused on testing and learning and experimentation and data-driven design and I'd say a richer, more sophisticated idea of what design strategy is than we've thought of in the past. So this, I think, upends a lot of assumptions we've had for a while. It means that design maturity isn't about size. <laughs> it's not about like setting up a repeatable operation per se. Uh, those are maybe important aspects to consider. But to be really mature, you actually need to have some more sophisticated practices. And you need to make sure that the headcount that you have is being applied and used effectively. So I think what, what it means to be doing this work really well has changed a lot, even in the last three years. So based on this analysis and these new discoveries, you were able to divide up companies into different tiers depending on their maturity. Could you talk a little bit about those tiers? Yeah. So uh, the one thing we wanted to do with this analysis was really ground it specifically in impact to the business and the degree of adoption inside a company. And the thinking there was that Obviously, if design isn't having any business impact, then what's the point? But uh, in addition, you can have isolated success stories that maybe aren't repeatable inside the organization. So by looking at it on these two dimensions of impact and then how um, consistent and pervasive that impact is across the organization, we wanted to create an understanding of like who's up and to the right, you know, in terms of achieving both of those things. And for those who are um, kind of stuck 
stuck in the bottom left corner. What are they doing? And so once we, uh, we looked at those two dimensions against each other, the first thing that jumped out at us actually is that there is a direct correlation there statistically. So the more you adopt design inside the organization, ad- adoption meaning like the more consistently it's practiced on projects, the more executives and employees are engaging in the design process, the more key partners are really working as true partners with design, the more business benefits you'll see. And so once we had that finding, which I think was really remarkable, actually, then we kind of plotted everybody on that on that curve, like who's low benefits, low adoption, who's high benefits, who's high adoption, and where are the meaningful breakoff points in between. And from that, we identified five really distinct groups of companies who are doing design, who, you know, I'll say they're doing design, but what design means is really different in each of those places. And the impact it has is really different in each of those places. So this is the part that was particularly interesting to me was just, you know, again, kind of thinking about previous uh, research and our understanding of design maturity, which is really about the design organization. Mm-hmm. And what what was uncovered by this study is really maturity has a lot to do with reaching beyond the borders of the design team and getting broader engagement and awareness. It's one thing to get an executive to plunk down some cash to buy, let's say, a a design company, design agency, and bring those designers in-house. Or it's one thing to hire a bunch of designers and give them, you know, the the resources they need. That doesn't necessarily lead to maturity. And what what your study is showing is um, reaching beyond the borders is kind of a key. Can you you talk a little bit about that and how that breaks down with the levels and the activities Mm -hmm. associated with that and what that means for business value? Yeah, I, I guess what I'd say is, too, it's not even about reaching beyond the borders for its own sake. It's because these specific activities that more mature companies have to do for the design process are implicitly cross-functional and collaborative. Mm-hmm. And you can't do them successfully if you actually don't have those cross-border relationships. So maybe to answer that question, I'll just talk through what characterizes the different levels, because I think it really brings it to life. So level one, the uh, lowest level, which is honestly, it's 40% of companies in our study, which is pretty substantial, their conception of design is really just screen design. Their most prevalent activities are uh, wireframes and visual design comps and prototypes, and that's kind of it. And they get some benefits. They get product usability benefits, but it sort of stops there. At level two, you start to see much more collaborative behaviors start to happen in the form of like workshops and design sprints and rapid sketching and stakeholder input. And it's um, it brings additional benefit. You start to see customer satisfaction improvements, but it's very episodic, I would say. It's like, let's have a workshop. <laughs> let's have a structure, you know, to do this in. It doesn't necessarily mean it's part of the DNA of how the design team operates. At level three, you start to see evidence that they're dealing with more coordination inside a complex organization. So they have practices that enable coordination with other teams. So daily stand-ups, prioritization activities, uh, more extensive documentation, things that show that they're really trying to think about how this stuff lives and gets um, taken on by other groups. At level four, level four is really interesting. It's a a watershed moment in terms of business benefits. Uh, In the previous levels, I've mentioned a few benefits. All of a sudden at level four, it's like they're seeing revenue gains, they're seeing time to market improvements, they're seeing employee productivity improvements and cost savings. It's It's a really valuable place to be. And what happens at level four is it's all about data-driven design and using experimentation and testing and learning to place multiple bets and figure out the right one. And so they have in place 
pretty robust practices about establishing at the outset of an initiative how you're going to measure its success and then actually making sure they measure it. They have mechanisms to recruit customers for tests. They have mechanisms to spin up experiments pretty rapidly. They have A-B testing and beta testing as standard operating procedure. And all that stuff requires partners in the organization. You got to have friends on your data team. You got to have deep partnerships with product management. You've got to have deep partnerships with your legal team. It just means that the design has to be more connected for any of that to work. And then by level five, design is really characterized by uh, a kind of concrete and deep strategy practice around trend spotting and foresight analysis and um, product market fit experimentation and developing omni-channel design strategies. So that means, you know, you need to talk to your senior leadership and you need to be working with the corporate strategy team and you need to understand what the overall business strategy is to align to that. So those higher levels, in order just to do, you know, what design, what the design process entails at those levels, it is implicitly um, dependent on strong uh, peer relationships and partner relationships with other organizations. And that's why that adoption piece comes out so strongly in the maturity model, because it means other people see design's value, understand what the heck it is, and actively participate and engage in it. As companies start progressing in maturity levels, how does that shake out organizationally? We talk to teams that are centralized or embedded. What does it look like as a company levels up as it relates to team structure? That's a great question. And it's actually, I think this is this gets at maybe one of the sacred cows that we might need to tip over <laughs> based on this study. I, I think there's often an assumption that like if you can just get the design team in the right part of the organization or you can just get it in the right structure or you can make sure that it's aligned with this particular VP, then from there all else you know follows. And what we saw in the data is there isn't really a strong correlation between org structure or reporting line and maturity. One thing we asked about was typical design org structure. We saw that most companies have centralized design teams still, over 60%. Uh, that number doesn't change substantially if you cut it by maturity level. I actually had a hypothesis going into this research that a hybrid model would be more correlated with maturity. That does not appear to be the case. I had a hypothesis going into this that aligning into certain parts of the organization would be more correlated with maturity. That also doesn't seem to be the case. You can say generally at a high level, it's a little less common to have high maturity companies where design reports into, say, marketing uh, or engineering, and a little more common uh, in high maturity companies for design to have a direct relationship with the CEO. But it's not like data that hits you over the head. Ratios, we expected to see, like, ratios are a big a big factor here. It turns out, actually, they're not super predictive. They're, in general, ratios are sort of uh, healthy overall, and that's true in some cases in low maturity companies and also in high maturity companies. So the big aha for me from all this, actually, is that if you're, if you're obsessing about where design fits in the organization as your key to maturity, you might be focusing on the wrong stuff. Uh, better still to actually focus on if your design process is geared to achieve concrete business benefits. And then from there, I think traction follows and you can, you know, you can end up in wherever you need to be in the organization. But that's not the silver bullet that's going to get you where you want to go. To me, that's you know, a super encouraging message here because um, so often when we talk to design leaders or we talk to individual contributors, there's always like, you know, if only we had executive sponsorship, if only we had this organizational structure, if only we could do this thing that is beyond our control, but, you know, we'll wait for some day and in the meantime, we'll keep our heads down and keep plugging away. And in reality, what it sounds like from this study um, focusing on those external things that that design teams often don't have control over, that's 
that's probably not going to be the silver bullet that they hoped for. Now, granted, executive sponsorship probably doesn't hurt. We recently talked with the head of design at the Wall Street Journal, and he talked about the instances where he had executive sponsorship and things went really fast and then times where he didn't have it and things, you know, didn't happen um, as well. But I wondered if you could address that of just like, you know, if we're not focusing on these things that we don't have control of, what can we tangibly focus on to to uplevel our practice? Well, so yeah, the executive sponsorship thing in particular is really interesting because what we saw in the data actually is that pretty low maturity companies actually still have executive sponsorship and then all the way on up to high maturity. So it isn't necessarily the case that, you know, once your leadership starts saying like design is important, that does it for you. You know, the reality is you actually still have to deliver. <laughs> and in fact, if your leadership is saying like, yeah, we support you and this is important and you don't deliver, you really run the risk of uh, losing, you know, burning faith in that design is valuable at all. So what teams need to do is really actually focus on doing the design process the right way, which sounds so basic, but that's kind of the most important finding is like, if you are just doing screen design, <laughs> you are not going to have the business impact that you want to have. If you're not doing why, user why research. Why is that? Why, if, if you're just doing screen, screen design, what's, what's falling short there? Uh, an understanding of real customers and their needs, the uh, taking advantage of that feedback loop that design provides where you can do rapid testing and experimentation and uh, identify where to where to place your bets from there. And also just using not, not design of the screen, but design as a methodology to actually probe into sort of deeper and more fundamental uh, challenges that your business has. You're just you're not doing everything that design can do. So uh, I mean, to your question about like what teams really should focus on if it's not like, you know, executive sponsorship, what teams should focus on is making sure that they're doing the design process in as kind of a robust a way as they can, that they're making sure that they run multiple experiments, that they're making sure that they actually spend some time at the outset saying how they're going to measure success and then measure it, that they make sure that they're not just making personas from their head and then not validating them, but that they're actually having some time <laughs> with customers and that they even if they don't have permission to, that when they learn things from user research about the overall portfolio or the product or the offer or the value to the customer, they're presenting a point of view back to their organization about what a better experience for the customer could be overall, even if that experience extends beyond like fixing this form on this page. So what this study for, you know, says for me is this is a call to arms to design teams to do better in their own house, like to not let the typical excuses, like we don't have permission to do this thing, be real excuses that they need to find a way to get creative to accomplish these things because it's it's what will demonstrate impact to their business. And then that ultimately is what will create more momentum and support for them to do their work. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. 
Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data, and with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to CrashPlan.com designbetter to sign up for a free trial, try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy-one-get-one offer for Design Better listeners. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter. Back up better with CrashPlan. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. So to, to demonstrate that impact, um, they have to have measurable outcomes. And so curious to hear what, what are some of the ways that teams are measuring success and um, and this actually comes from a fireside chat question we had but are there some design specific ways that, that the teams are measuring success yeah the, the this is a big question this is like the sixty four thousand dollar question I feel like I've been chasing it for years to be honest it's really hard to get people to share their data about this stuff and I think there's this desire to find like what is the design set of KPIs that are different from product KPIs and business KPIs and uh, what we see in this study, at least, is that that's a false distinction, that actually the business KPIs are design KPIs, and that the most mature teams are just demonstrating that bus- that uh, impact on the highest level. What I will say is, we just generally, not, if you don't look at the data 
cut by maturity, we see that about half of companies are measuring user behavior. Uh, there are about half of them, a little more than half, are measuring customer satisfaction. Uh, and then it's about a third of companies are measuring things like conversion and funnel metrics um, or uh, tests and experiments uh, or targeted metrics determined for each project. Uh, there's about a quarter companies that are actually measuring design team behaviors specifically, like speed or number of experiments or user exposure hours. So there are some kind of design team specific measures that you could certainly focus on. But the big obvious candidates are, are you looking at the quality of the experience through basic things like usability and user behavior? Are you looking at the impact on your customer satisfaction through things like NPS or SUS? And then are you looking at the impact on your business through you know, conversion metrics and revenue and, and other financial KPIs. Can you talk about the dimensions that emerged from this study? So we've talked about from the study that this model emerged of there, there are these five levels and these are the behaviors in each one. And there's kind of these clear breakpoints. But beyond that, there are specific dimensions. I think there's a total of nine dimensions. Yep. They, they isolate the practices um, and the focal points. Can you break those down for us? Yes. Thank you for asking this, Aaron, because this is my favorite question because I'm a total nerd for this stuff and this is so fun to me. So, all right. So here I go. Uh, in doing this work, we asked companies about really hundreds of variables in terms of their behaviors and their resources and activities and all this different stuff. And then we wanted to understand like what are their, what are the underlying themes that kind of unite these variables. So we, uh, we did a process uh, called factor analysis. It's a statistical method that helps you figure out like among multiple, many questions, are there questions that are kind of connected? For example, for instance, like if, if you, as a, as a way of illustrating, let's say you ask people like, do you have a Christmas tree in your house? And have you been buying a lot of presents for people? And do you have a wreath on your front door? Um, factor analysis would probably find that people answer those con those questions in a consistent way. And, and then it's the researcher's job to say like, hmm, seems like they might be celebrating Christmas. So we kind of did that with all these different questions. And what we saw when we said like, what's going on here is that there was, there were nine kind of discrete dimensions that came out strongly in the data, and they actually ladder up to three big principles. And um, those three big principles are, they're so, they're so obvious, actually. It's people, it's practices, and it's platforms. So within people, there were a number of questions that are about this dimension of what the design team itself does, what, how, what it looks like, and what kind of behaviors it has, and how it sees itself reflected in the organization. Side note, interesting thing about the design teams, I really thought that design team roles would be an important dimension here in maturity. That did not appear to be the case, actually. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of companies that just have sort of non-specialized design, like product design roles or general roles who are actually pretty high maturity. So the, the roles you hire for, they're not essential for maturity. What ends up being a lot more essential is that leadership is well-positioned, that the design team itself is, it's, you know, its work can take hold and it sees reflections of its work in the culture. So just interesting there. But um, in addition, within people, two more dimensions there really uh, jumped out strongly. The second was key partners. And that's really how does design work with product management and engineering? Uh, do they do they just do workshops together? Are they sitting together every day? Are they jointly developing the direction of the product together? Are they held accountable for the same goals? Uh, all that stuff kind of rolls into that. And then the third dimension under people is executives and employees. And what was really interesting from the factor analysis was those two things came back connected and strongly correlated. So it turns out when executives are doing more design-centric things, employees do more design-centric things, which, you know, makes sense. But it 
speaks to, I think, this constant question we have, which is like, is it grassroots or is it top down? Do you have to get your executive sponsor first or your employees on board first? And it turns out it's a coordinated campaign, but you have to work on both. Hmm. Um, That was sort of the people bucket. And then the practices bucket was really fascinating for me because it showed that there's really four kind of core building blocks to design maturity in, in terms of the concrete work that design teams do. Uh, the first is sort of obvious, it's UI design. And here we see that even the, the, you know, the least mature companies are doing a lot of UI design. But as you grow higher in maturity, the complexity of that UI design deepens. And even once you get to the most mature levels, actually, those are the teams that are making more of a disciplined practice around like accessibility review and micro interaction design and really like fine creating really finely crafted experiences that serve a broad range of customers and that have sort of delight in every moment. So that's the UI design bucket. Under practices also, there's uh, user research emerged as a really strong theme in and of itself. And what we saw is that at the lowest maturity, it just doesn't happen. But as you move into like level two, level three, there's more, there's a lot of like journey mapping, there's, you know, personas, things like that. Once you get to levels four or five, you actually see a lot more of the kinds of research techniques that put people in direct contact with their customers all the time. Uh, Guerrilla research, uh, testing, uh, you know, sort of shadowing and observational research. So that emerged as a really strong dimension. And then the third dimension that, that came out, which really surprised me, was one that we're sort of calling experimentation. And that was this idea of data-driven design. How much are you using experimentation and hypothesis development and testing and measuring to determine that you're moving in the right direction? And that really concretely becomes evident at levels four and five. So that's, I think, emerging as a very important and concrete thing that teams are going to have to take on in design if they're going to be successful. Um, And that's new, I think, for our field. And then uh, the, the fourth in under practices is design strategy. And a fun fact about the research is we ask generally if people do design strategy, and actually everybody says they do design strategy. <laughs> level one says they do it, level two, and on and on. But it's at level five that that actually gets contextualized. At level five, they're doing you know, trend spotting and foresight analysis and, and, and the omni-channel work that we talked about and everything. Like they can actually, they got the receipts. They can actually show you what strategy looks like at level five. So that's the practices. And then lastly, the is the platforms bucket. And there are two really important dimensions there, uh, design operations and design systems. And that's because design operations, well, I should say that's because all this work doesn't happen just like in a vacuum. <laughs> it's a lot of work to actually do design well. Design operations creates that foundation and design systems creates that scale. And that's that's what it is. The design systems dimension I found particularly interesting because my initial thought or my initial hypothesis before we did this study was that design systems would be a marker for a team that's that's higher maturity. But what we found was that that's not the case. Actually, design systems are pretty baseline for a lot of teams. Yeah, that's right. I, I think the thing that jumped out at me from the research on design systems is there's like design systems, the thing versus design systems, the behaviors. And even at the lowest maturity levels, people are doing a lot of the sort of behaviors of design systems. So they're documenting their visual guidelines and they're trying to get their editorial guidelines in place and they're trying to document sort of patterns. And what more mature teams are doing around design systems is they're just, they're formalizing that and they're putting in place foundations to make that accessible to the whole organization. So Having, you know, a system documented isn't mature, but having code (laughs) attached to it is mature. Having a platform that lives on is mature. Having a team to support it is mature. So it's it's sort of like you're doing it. How much are you actually putting some some structure around it? That's, Mm. That's the marker of maturity. 
So one thing that I'm curious about is, so some of these um, frameworks, concepts like design ops, design systems are, are relatively new when you think about it. You know, they've only been around for you know, design ops, especially for a handful of years. So how much do you think is, is just a matter of education and these these concepts spreading? And how much is a matter of sort of organizational inertia and large companies just being very difficult to change to reach, reach a certain level of maturity? Mm. That's a good question. I think the reality actually is design ops is a buzzword for things that good organizations have been trying to do for a while, actually. So the the things that are actually in that dimension of design ops, they range from, you know, having a, a mission statement <laughs> for the design team, using design principles, uh, having um, good recruiting practices, having like, you know, good like job descriptions, having annual planning. I mean, all that stuff, like if you've been a, a well-run team, you've been thinking about doing that even before the buzzword became a big buzzword. Design systems is the one that strikes me as, as potentially more new. I mean, I feel like this this challenge that organizations are having of not just doing design well, but doing it repeatedly and scalably across the organization and gaining efficiencies where they can is becoming a lot more critical. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both, actually. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how design maturity um, differs with industry and maybe location and company size a little bit. How does it break down? I mean, is it the same for different types of companies or are there distinct patterns that emerged? Ah, oh, patterns. There's some patterns. There's some interesting ones, definitely. So let's talk region first. What you can say generally is that North America and EMEA or North America and the block of areas called, we refer to it as EMEA, but it's Europe, Middle East, and Africa. They're, um, when you compare those two markets, they're actually pretty similar in maturity. The distributions look about the same. Latin America is is pretty behind in terms of overall maturity. There's a lot more companies that are low maturity and very few that are high maturity. And then Asia Pacific is in this interesting middle ground, actually, where they're less likely to have low maturity companies, but they're also less likely to have high maturity companies. So there, there's a lot of people who are sort of stuck on, or at least at the stage of trying to make design a slightly more collaborative process and trying to sort of um, run a more efficient operation around it. So that was interesting to note, and I'll be curious to watch Asia-Pac in particular to see what happens with that. In terms of industries, there are definitely some clear leaders and there are some clear laggards. And the laggards are kind of maybe who you would expect. And nonprofits and government and education actually tends to lag a little bit. The leaders are, you know, tech uh, and uh, healthcare, um, professional services uh, do pretty well. What's interesting for me about the industries is there's this chunk of companies where it's like it's just complicated because they have a lot who are at tiers two and three. Uh, they're not necessarily super low maturity or high maturity, but just kind of clustering around the middle. So in that area, I would include folks like retail and media and um, folks like that. So those areas, and actually banking jumps out as one that's sort of in that category, which is really interesting from the banking perspective, because I feel like banks or the banking industry is such a big employer of design people, such a huge percentage of the market, but the maturity doesn't necessarily reflect that. So it suggests that there's some work to, do to kind of clean up the design process in, in banking. These middle sort of maturity uh, companies, they just they just suggest a lot of competition and volatility in those markets that everybody's sort of trying to figure out how to advance, but there aren't clear leaders yet on that front. So that's, that's industries. And then a company size. Yeah, company size is really interesting too. In general, uh, very large enterprises skew less mature and smaller companies skew more mature. And that's, I think it's kind of obvious why that would be the case. It's just so hard to do this in a large bureaucratic organization. You're dealing with more complexity and inertia. And if the, what characterizes maturity is 
you know, the whole organization adopting, that's a much bigger task in a large enterprise. I say that, but there are large enterprises who are high maturity in our study. So it's not impossible. It just means you have to figure out the right way to do it. What else was super interesting, exciting, or even a thread that it didn't deliver an answer, but maybe created a question mark for you that is a thread that we could pull on and, and dig deeper on? Hmm, what a fun question. One, one night, late in, late in the evening, as I was digging through the data, I ran a quick calculation against the reported business benefits in the org structure. And uh, I saw that the, the reported benefits actually kind of make sense <laughs> in relationship to where design reports. So like in, if design reports into marketing, it's slightly more likely to report an impact on revenue than if it reports into another part of the organization. Or if it reports into engineering, it's slightly more likely to report an impact on efficiency and time to market. And if you outsource design, actually, you, you mostly you don't get any of the benefits that everyone else sees, but you are slightly more likely to get time to market. So it definitely would re require a little bit further analysis to say concrete things about it. But it's interesting and, and actually super intuitive to think that depending on what you're trying to accomplish with design, it might argue for design being in a certain place in the organization or orientation to the organization that could be different you know, in one place or another. And what a fascinating, fascinating thing to know if you're an executive or some sort of a leader and you know what the business needs most right now, you can make that organizational shift um, instead of, you know, guessing at it and seeing what happens in a couple years. Yeah, completely. So let's do a follow-up podcast on that one, you guys. <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, I, I have one more question for you. Uh, we certainly have a lot of listeners who are in the agency world, and I know that they're wondering what slice of this research were agencies included? And if so, how do they compare to, let's say, product teams? Yeah, yeah. Um, agencies were definitely included. They were about a quarter of respondents and yeah, well-represented around the world. And the really interesting thing is they have a very similar distribution in terms of maturity and very similar practices, actually. So I think there's often an assumption that like agencies get to skew more mature because they, they just get to do the best work or you know they what they do is different somehow than what happens inside of organizations but what we saw in the data actually is it's it's pretty similar like if agencies want to have this kind of impact with their clients they basically need to follow these practices too and maybe in kind of an important thing to note for people who are buying agency services there are about 40% of agencies that are super low maturity in terms of how they report so be really smart when you're talking to a potential agency about what design means to them and, and how they can support you in that because the same distribution applies there. Well, this is fascinating. I feel like I could talk about this all day. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, we do. <laughs> so uh, this is just a snapshot of what our common conversations are within the design education team with our colleagues here at Envision. So uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing everything that you've been uncovering with this research. Thank you. It was a pleasure.